Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. To be a witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are about to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that you lay before us, your children, that we might feast on it that we might be strengthened by it, that we might be encouraged and exhorted by it. Do this by the power of your spirit working in and through your word and your servant this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as we go back to the Gospel of Mark for this winter and springtime, picking up where we left off last spring, I just want to spend a few more uh, introductory comments than I usually make just to kind of resituate us with where we're at in the gospel. For one thing, if, if you're not familiar with how we do our, our preaching schedule is every winter and spring we, we're in the gospels. And every, every uh, fall to the, you know, December we're in an Old Testament book and then in the summertime we're in one of the New Testament letters. And so whenever we are in a longer book, we just pause and then we pick it up back the next, the next year. And so last year we, we ended off um, the summertime at Mark chapter 12. And so now we're going to pick it up at Mark 13 and we're going to end the book of Mark actually on Easter Sunday this year. So that's going to be fun. But just to re just remind you all where we're all at in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark 13 comes to us in the last week of Jesus' life. And so in a couple days from this moment, he will actually die. And, uh, you know, as Jesus comes, you know, into the city on a couple days before he comes, you know, riding on a donkey and the city's abuzz because this, this, this man has come into the city and he's, and he's uh, 
saying all sorts of things where he calls the, you know, the, the temple the den of thieves and turns over the tables. That whole scene has happened and he's starting to ramp up. There's more tension between him and the Pharisees. You know, not in this gospel account, but in others, he starts saying some really, you know, things, strong statements. Woe are you statements. And just before this moment, you have this parable of, of how, you know, he's saying that, that basically prophesying the fact that these Pharisees are going to kill him. And so there's rising tensions in the temple. The Pharisees are not happy. Right after this chapter, actually, chapter 14, verse 1, we find the Pharisees are actually going to begin their plots to kill Jesus. And we know that they're successful in these plots. So it's kind of uh, crazy times in the life of Jesus and his followers. And at the moment that we find uh, Mark 13, in the midst of, in the midst of all these um, tensions, they had just uh, been in the... Uh, been in the temple, he just preached to beware of the scribes, and now they're walking out of the temple, and this is where Mark 13 comes to us, and this, this section of scripture is called the Mount, I mean the, the Olivet Discourse, because he, it takes place on the Mount of Olives, and this is actually the longest bit of dialogue you find from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember, uh, in Advent season, I actually preached on the Matthew's account of this in Matthew 24. And now as we go through it in Mark chapter 13, some of the same content, we're going to break it down into four different sermons going through the various parts of uh, Mark 13. Because when it comes to the, this section of scripture, it's called the Olivet Discourse, there's no shortage of different interpretations on it. And uh, all the different interpretations around this little section of scripture um, happen around, fall, fall, fall around the timing of Jesus' words here. As in, when are these events actually going to happen that he's talking about? You know, some people say, well, Jesus is prophesying about the events that happen um, in history about the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So, these, so some people say, well, these events that he's talking about have already happened in the fall of the temple 70 AD. Other people will say, no, he's prophesying about future things, things that haven't even happened yet. Uh, he's talking about a second coming. And then there's other people who say, well, he's talking about both. And even in the people who say, well, he's talking a little bit about both here differ in which parts of this section are future and which parts of these things have already happened in 70 AD. And, uh, and to kind of play my cards at the beginning here is, is that I believe that everything except for the last couple of verses in this section have actually already happened in history. Um, that, that, that most of what Jesus is talking about is happened around the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the reason I believe that, 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 that what Jesus is saying here has been fulfilled, is prophecy that's already been fulfilled, is because of what Jesus says towards the end of this section I'm going to cheat a little bit and go outside of what I read already this morning. But this is uh, verse 30 in the same discourse. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so I take that to mean that everything he's been saying up until that point will happen. And uh, so, I, so that's why I believe that he, Jesus himself is saying, listen, what, what's being said here is actually a near Prophecy. So it means everything he's talking about, all these things will happen actually in these disciples' lifetime. And I think all of them did happen with the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now that doesn't mean that every detail uh, that Jesus tells us here is easily understood or explained. 
I think there's still some things that he's saying that are mysterious that we, I don't even fully understand. There's some things he says are very confusing. But regardless of where you fall on that particular debate, I think that the main meaning of the things and the main idea that Jesus is getting across to his disciples will actually come out as we explore this uh, important passage of scripture together. And I think that the first thing that will come into our view this morning in these first, first bit of this discourse is this, that there's a world that is dying. And as the age of the temple is passing away, which is that's what Jesus has been talking about this, uh, leading up into this moment, uh, it's, it's a world is dying. And the fact that a world is dying is very concerning to the disciples. And they say this in verse 1 and 2. Uh, you know, as they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what a wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. So these disciples are walking out of the, the temple and actually marveling at the, at the temple. And there was actually much to marvel about. This building was stunning. Um, the stones were massive, bigger than this stage is, made of marble. They're actually called Herodian stones because Herod the Great, who was the, the leader at the time, he was actually renovating the temple and, and putting so much money and resources in it. In it. The, the whole temple area was massive. It was about 35 acres in, in size. 35, that's larger than downtown Yakima. It was a massive building. And it wasn't just big. It wasn't like, you know, like you see those giant fruit warehouses that are massive, but they're, you know, they're ugly. It wasn't, it wasn't ugly. It was stunning. It was beautiful. It was covered in white marble and gold. You know, people from a distance that were coming into Jerusalem would actually see the temple and they would think it's a, it's a mountain covered in snow because it was so radiant with white and gold everywhere. And it was not a, only just a big and beautiful building, but it's actually the center of their culture. The temple was the center of their world, their life, their worship revolved around this place, right? This is the place that the Messiah was gonna come and rule from. This is the place that God dwelled with and among his people. This is the place that they sacrificed and experienced the forgiveness of their sins. It was the heartbeat of their community. And the building itself resembled this. And the disciples marvel at it as they're coming out of it. And Jesus says to them, uh, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You know, it's just kind of a strange statement. It's just plainly, he says, listen, this is all gonna actually uh, be torn down. Every stone that you're marveling at, everything that looks like it's gonna last is gonna be overturned. You know, Jesus doesn't use figurative language here. He doesn't even hint at the fact that this is gonna happen, but he actually says it very plainly, a little bit awkwardly, a little bit aggressively. Uh, and the disciples are rightly curious about this. Well, this is the center of our world. This is the center of our universe. It's so big and beautiful. We love this place. Why would you tear it down? And so they're curious about this, this tearing down of the temple, this tearing down of their world, and they're concerned. And I think they're concerned because as Jesus is telling them that the temple is going to be destroyed, he is telling them that the world as they know it is dying. I think this would, this would have been as wild for them to hear as if uh, another country suddenly invaded our country and the language changed and everything changed in our, in our country. This is kind of how these guys would hear this or because the temple and its systems are being torn down. It's time is over. It's age is over. Uh, and Jesus has been right, judging the temple worship as being lifeless. And now he's saying the building that looks like it's full of life is going to resemble, resemble the lifeless worship of the people. What he's saying is radical. This is the kind of speech that is radical enough. That's going to, it's going to get Jesus killed. 
And this is why they come to Jesus and they say, well, when are these things going to happen? Right? When, are the, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this age happening? When is this age ending? And perhaps central to their concern is this. How do we survive a dying world? Right? The temple is going to be torn down. It's going to disrupt everything. How will we survive it? How do we endure a dying world? I think this is a question that concerns us, us today too. Right? How do we endure living in a dying world? Because make no mistake about it, parts of our world are dying too. As we live in the overlap of ages where one world is dying as another is being birthed in the kingdom of Christ and in the midst of living in a dying world, it can seem like all is at lost at times because when a world dies, it's messy. Right? Systems that we've learned to depend on are upended and overturned. Cultural artifacts that we're tempted to put our hope in get destroyed. So how do we endure in our present time? How do, how do we not get swayed by false hopes? And as we look at how Jesus answers the concerns of his disciples, looking back on his teaching about the, the passing of one age, I think we have a lot to learn about how to, how to live in the, in the age between ages. So the question we're going to ask is, how, how do we endure in a dying world? I think Jesus gives us two answers to this, and they're these. By, by not being led astray and by not being surprised by suffering. So the first thing, how do, how do we endure in a dying world? By not being led astray. We endure by not being led astray. Look with me back here at verse 3 to 4. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will the sign be? when all these things are about to be accomplished. And, uh, and so, so the disciples want to know, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And so they ask them, when? And what are the signs? And, and this morning we're going to answer the, we're going to look at just the when part of their question. Uh, and then Jesus responds to them in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus begins answering their question about the destruction of the temple and when that's going to happen by saying, don't be led astray. How interesting of a response is this? Kind of gives us a start from the very beginning that, that, that the coming days, the coming times are not going to be easy. Right? To not be led astray means that you're going to be tempted to be led astray. The fall of the temple will bring much tribulation. And when this happens, right, there are two things that are tempting to lead, the people, to lead them astray that they need to endure through. And those, those two things that they need to, to not be led astray by are deceptions and destruction. So first, deception. Look here at verse six. It says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. So Jesus is saying, listen, don't be led astray by the false teachers. They're gonna be coming. They will come in, in my name, in Jesus' name, and they're gonna say, I am he. As in, they will come and say, I am the Messiah. Right, false messiahs, false prophets coming to be saviors, messianic pretenders. You know, and in that history of that time, there indeed were several that showed up before the destruction of the temple that tried to sway people. You know, a Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive during this time, tells us of some of these men that one was a Samaritan, there was a, there was a man named Theodos, there was Judas of Galilee, there was a Jew from Egypt. And they all had messianic and political aspirations, and some of them had like a couple hundred followers. And the, the, the Jew from Egypt had thousands of followers. 
all coming to be the hope of the Jewish people, all coming to offer a type of salvation, mostly political. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, when these guys come, do not be led astray by them. He says, I am the Messiah. When hard times come, don't, don't turn, don't be fooled by these, by, these false, by these false messiahs. Don't look to them to fix the problems for you because they're fake. They can't do anything for you. The salvation they offer is false. Endure, I am the Messiah. Endure by walking with me. So first thing that's gonna be tempting to lead them astray. The second thing is destruction. So the second thing that can lead them astray that they need to endure through is the coming destructions. Verse 7 to 8, it says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must, must take place. The end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. He's saying, listen, there's going to be troubled times ahead. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but don't be deceived. This is not the end. When you hear of nations fighting and rumors of war, when you hear of famines and earthquakes, don't lose heart. This is all according to plan. These things have to happen first. It's still not yet time for this temple to fall. And make no mistake, this is a turbulent time in the world that the, you know, there was wars and, and rumors of wars happening all over the region. The one, there was a war between Rome and Parthia in 36 and between Herod Antipas and King Eratos IV and also in 36. There was a large... Jewish demonstration against the Romans, and the list goes on. At one point in, in 48 AD, 20,000 Jewish citizens were killed. Uh, there was also earthquakes recorded in this time, as well as a famine in, in 41 and 46 AD. These are things that have happened. And Jesus is prophesying these things, telling them what is coming, so that they can hold fast. He says these are the beginning of the birth pains. A new world is coming. The old is being judged and being torn down. And there's not a, a simple or painless process anymore that then giving birth is painless. Right? When a world dies, it is painful. And Jesus wants his people to endure through this time so that they can indeed be saved. Because it is when hardships come that we can get led astray from the truth, isn't it? Right? It's, if, if things are going really well from you and, and someone tries to sell you a false messiah which is to say, give you a different way of salvation, it won't be very tempting for you, will it? Because things are going good. You have no need for a, a, another way of salvation. But it's when hardships come, right? It's when trials come. It's when wars and rumors of war and turmoil come that you may be tempted by these things. And Jesus is saying, listen, when these things come, hold fast. Don't lose hope. Don't give in to despair. Don't turn to another for salvation. Don't give in to the false messiahs coming to offer uh, political hope. It's only in me that you can be saved. Endure, be saved, be ready for this. This is true for us in our day. That once when we experience the darkness that can come in life, that we can begin to question if what we believe is actually true. Does it have any substance to it? Right, is Jesus really the Messiah if he lets hard things happen, bad things happen in this world? Is Jesus really the Messiah coming to save us when there's so much war and famine and natural disasters? In our day, with our own political turmoil in our own country, it can be easy to put our hope in politics and the false teachers promising political salvation and prosperity. And this is often what the false messiahs in this day would offer. This is how they would gain followers and, you know, times of turmoil that would come and offering freedom and peace and the promise of political freedom. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't take the bait. 
right? The, even for our day, politics, well, very good and necessary for life in common with each other, and we should be engaged in these things. They cannot save you. Only Christ is king. Only Christ is our Messiah, the one that can actually save us. And Jesus says to us and to them, hold fast. I am who I said I was, and this is true in the hard times and the good times. I am the great king bringing order to the world. I am the son of the father, and in me you have everything. Hold on to me. In me you lack nothing. And as he encourages his people to hold fast, to endure through what's coming, as he's trying to prepare his, his people for what's coming, uh, his comfort to his people to endure is not that, listen, it's actually going to be easy. It's going to be okay. That's actually not his word of comfort. Uh, he's, he's not even telling them, this is going to be over pretty quick. He's actually telling them, you know, this is going to last a bit. It's going to be hard. But salvation will come in the end is his comfort. And this is where we find the second aspect of our need for endurance on display. It's that we can endure hard times. We can endure by not being surprised by suffering. By not being surprised by suffering. Look with me here at verse 9. It says this. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You know this phrase, be on guard, carries with it this connotation. Be ready. Or don't be surprised. Right? Don't be surprised that things are going to get hard. Don't be surprised by the coming suffering. And the rest of this section kind of reads like the book of Acts, doesn't it? Uh, you know, throughout the book of Acts, what do you find? The disciples delivered over to councils. They're beaten, standing before governors and kings. He tells them, listen, don't be anxious about this. The spirit of God will fill your mouth as you speak. And as they go out proclaiming the gospel, they indeed proclaim it to the known world. And the world hates them for this. You know, if the disciples expect the coming times to be easy, they would have crumbled under the weight of it. Jesus is saying, listen, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Hard days are ahead. A world is dying. We are building a new one. And the world, the existing world is going to hate you for it. Right? And it's not just the world that's going to hate you, but even, even your family will hate you. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And fathers, his children, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. It's not even just the, the, those outside that we have to worry about, but even, even your own family will hate you for the gospel. And they will turn you over to the authorities. And, you know, in the early church in those days, they experienced profound persecution. You probably know the story. It was being used as human torches at parties, being thrown to wild beasts to be eaten. But not everyone endured through these times, right? Some, in fact, in the, in the face of wild persecution, gave in and, and turned over their loved ones to the authorities. And he's saying, be on guard for this. Don't be surprised when these things happen. A dying world hates you. You may die, but you will be saved if you endure to the end. You may die, but you will be saved if you endure. But wait, you might think, that doesn't really sound like salvation, does it? Right, the whole point of enduring and not giving into false teaching and not giving up hope is in being saved. But being saved isn't dying, is it? Seems backwards from what we think of. I think this is where we find one of the deepest and hardest truths of the gospel. Right, we often associate uh, the word salvation with prosperity, 
And this is one of the hard things for us living in a prosperous place in the world at a prosperous time. We can get those things confused. We think our prosperity is our salvation. And so much so that we can come to expect prosperity as if it's a right that we're owed. And when it doesn't happen, we can get mad. We get mad at God, we get mad at the church, we get mad at anyone who will listen. And, and because of these things, we don't endure. But in Jesus, what do we find? In the overlap of ages, what do we find? That salvation isn't actually associated with our worldly prosperity. Salvation is associated with Christ. Christ who died and rose again. And with picking up our cross and following him, I think we often read these things as, as though they're figurative or hyperbolic. Oh, yeah, we need to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. But you know, of the 12 disciples, all but John is actually put to death. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Enduring in a dying world looks like suffering. This is why Christ followers aren't those who, who run and, and hide in, in closets. But when a world is dying and crumbling, we're the ones who go out into the world preaching the gospel to the kings, preaching the gospel to those who will actually do us harm. Right? We're the ones who stay behind. We're the ones who are there in the end, if not this life, then the next one. So how do we do this? How do we endure a dying world? When things look bleak, when things are against us. Well, it's not by our own strength, it's not by our own will, but through Jesus and his spirit which fill us. Right? We endure to the end ultimately because Jesus is the one who endured to the end. Jesus is the, the stone that the builders rejected. Right? He was the, the true temple, the true presence of God that was rejected and was brutally murdered. Right? He was a stone that was turned over and buried in the ground he was a stone that rose from the ground and became the cornerstone of the new and better temple. Right? The new and better world that is being built and, and we, his people, the church, are the living stones of that better world. Not made of stone and, and marble and gold, but of flesh and blood. Joined by the blood of Christ. You know, Jesus came into the world knowing he was going to endure these things. And yet he came. Born of the Virgin Mary that you might endure too and be saved and be building blocks of a new world that is coming to earth as it is in heaven. Kind of begs the question as we're considering this is what do you expect following Jesus to look like in this present age? What do you expect following Jesus to look like for you? If you expect it's going to be easy... If you expect to be loved for following Jesus and worship for following Jesus, if you expect to be loved by the false messiahs who, you, uh, who reject the leaders of the world, you will struggle to endure to the end. Right? You, you can't endure all that's thrown at you in your own strength. But only as the spirit of Christ fills us, giving us his words, giving us his stamina, calming our anxieties, strengthening our resolve, giving us discernment to root out deceptions. It's only at that point that we can survive. And not only do we survive and endure this, this coming kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, but we do so with a mission to proclaim the gospel to all nations and all places, to expand this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And our mission that, that Christ gives us, that the good news of the gospel gives us, has hope because of the work of Christ, that he will indeed save us that he will rescue us from a dying world and bring us into his eternal kingdom for all time. May we be a people who put our trust in the Lord and this coming kingdom. May we be a people who endure to the end as we're united to Christ and his spirit. 
May we have faith as we join Jesus in building the eternal kingdom in a dying world. Pray with me. Holy Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your kingdom, which is forever. We give you thanks for your son, the cornerstone of this new kingdom that is being built in this world. I pray that you continue to strengthen our own resolve, that you would help us to indeed endure to the end, and that we would experience that great salvation that we have in you, life everlasting, a world without sin and no mourning and no death. And until the end happens for us, may we work and watch for your coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.